Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today I'm joined with Dr. Nikki Nielsen for a conversation about a previous pharaoh of Egypt, Tutankhamun. Dr. Nielsen is lecturer in Egyptology in the Department of Classics, Ancient History, Archaeology and Egyptology at the University of Manchester, based in the UK. He is author of the book, Egyptomaniacs, How We Became Obsessed with Ancient Egypt, which was published by Pen and Sword Books. And he has a forthcoming book on Tutankhamun, which will be published by Gulls for Leg. And Dr. Nielsen joins the show today from the UK. Welcome to the show, Nikki. And thank you so much. Thanks for, for having me on the show. I'm looking forward to the conversation, Nikki. It's uh, great. Yeah, yeah, it's great to chat with you today. Um, so to start the conversation off uh, and to create uh, sufficient uh, background and context, and then we can work our way into the details. Uh, who was Tutankhamun? Um, it, well, in the shortest possible uh, answer to the question, he was a, a ruler of the 18th dynasty. Uh, a pharaoh, pharaoh of Egypt, not a very long-lived ruler, um, already ruled for about eight years, at the end of a somewhat chaotic period of Egyptian history and right before a, a slightly uh, slightly less but still quite chaotic period of Egyptian history as well. Okay, so what's, um, what, what, what century, uh, what, what period of, of time did, did, uh, did he live? Well, uh, the, the precise dates are, are, you know, as all these things are perhaps a little bit muddled, but, uh, you know, sometime around 1340, and, and, and 1330 BCE, um, that's roughly uh, when, we're, uh, when we're, we're, we're situated. Okay, yeah, and it, it allows everybody to, to think about that um, from a chronology perspective, so 14th century BCE. Yeah, essentially, and it also shows how far back in time we actually are, um, and, and perhaps it explains why there are so many things about this period and about Tutankhamun and the story as a whole, which are, are quite uncertain, and really mostly what we have is educated guesswork. It's the Bronze Age at, that, at this Indeed. point, right? Indeed, late Bronze Age, yeah, absolutely. Um, how, what do scholars lean on in terms of informing them about uh, who this individual was? Well, a kind of a wealth of material really, but, but very fragmentary material. So we've obviously got archaeological evidence. Um, in the case of Tutankhamun, perhaps most notably his, his tomb in the Valley of the Kings and the burial goods that he was, was interred with. Um, we have contemporary archaeological remains from uh, Tel Alamana, the city where he was most likely uh, born uh, in, in Middle Egypt. We have uh, some archaeological material, uh, iconographic material as well from the Karnak Temple and from other temples in Egypt. And then we have some textual sources. The problem with the textual sources in a way is that they are overwhelmingly royal monumental inscriptions, right? So, so they are, they come with just such a heavy baggage. Um, these are, are texts that are um, written to portray the ruling family or the ruling individual to Carmen, for instance, in the best possible light. They, they are not intended to be objective historical sources. So, so we have to be very careful because we cannot use them 
as objective historical sources. Um, same goes for, for those individuals. I'm sure we'll talk about some of them that were associated with Tutankhamun. We have some information about them from, um, by, well, tomb biographies uh, in, their, in, their, in their tombs. But, but again, these are not objective historical sources. They're meant to portray the tomb owner in the best possible light. They're, they're not meant to give uh, an objective account of their life uh, and, and precisely what they did. So we have quite a lot of sources, but a lot of it is very fragmentary and a lot of it is very biased. Um, and that's something to really bear in mind. And also, of course, because of the kind of ideology that, that underpinned Pharaoh, there are certain things that would never be discussed in official uh, sources. So, for instance, the idea that a king could be murdered or, or, or uh, you know, otherwise be harmed, the idea that a king could be ill, um, as, as probably was the case with Tutankhamun, quite severely chronically ill, this is not something that would really make it into the official sources, um, because no one honestly had an interest in writing that down. I didn't hear... Um, the term mummy in your response. My apologies if I if I missed it, but I don't recall hearing it. I did hear a tomb. Did, was his mummy ever uh, discovered? Well, uh, yes, absolutely. His his mummy as well is part of the uh, part of the tomb, and that has told us a great deal about him as a person, um, as much as as much as a mummy you know can tell. Um, what it can tell us is is about what kind of ailments he has. For had, for instance, um, there are some ideas about how he may have died. Uh, as well from from sort of the bioarchaeology from the analysis of the of the mummy of course what all of these sources fail to tell us and fail to to inform us about um, by their very nature um, is things like temperament mood behavior these are things that are very very difficult um, to to ascertain from the historical record and and it's why it, it's it's very tricky to write biographies of ancient individuals in the way that we would understand a biography today. If you pick up a, a biography of a footballer or something like that, um, even a more modern biography of Napoleon or Churchill, a lot of the, the kind of personal behaviors um, are missing for, the, for, for, for these individuals. Um, so th this, is, this is the limitation of what we can say, I suppose. But, but the mummy, for instance, yes, can tell us a lot about Tutankhamun's physical, um, physical uh, for instance, ailments and, and, and things like that, and age and death and these kind of things. Um, but it can't really tell us very much about his thought process or his motivations. So his skeleton has been discovered and it... it, 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 well, it, it, it well, his mummified body, yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, that was found in, the, in, in, in his tomb um, and, and brought to, to Cairo in 1923. Okay. Um, I'm going to ask a question that is probably very obvious um, to, to you, but I want to ask it because I think it's very, very pra pragmatic and, uh, and it's an important, important question. Um, how, do, how do scholars know that that tomb is associated to him? Well, that's actually not a bad question. Um, well, first of all, because the tomb is inscribed with his name. Uh, with his, his various throne names. So we definitely know that the tomb was built for him. Well, I should say adapted for him because it was probably not built for him to start with, but, but certainly adapted for him. Um, in terms of the, of, of the mummy as well, the, the mummy is, is there, there are hieroglyphs associated with the mummy that 
suggest that it is Tutankhamun. Uh, there have been DNA analysis as well of the mummy uh, that links it to other mummies from uh, the sort of late 18th dynasty royal family. Um, so we're pretty sure that, that this is Tutankhamun we're dealing with. It would be a bit weird if it wasn't, to be honest. What's known about who his parents were? <laughs> Another really good one. Um, Never. That in itself is a bit tricky. Um, I think there is, well, there isn't really broad general agreement on, on any of this. I think the closest we get to, to broad general agreement is probably that his father was Akhenaten. Um, his mother, that's more tricky. Um, Akhenaten's great royal wife, Nefertiti, is, is always shown associated with daughters um, and is unlikely to be his mother that leaves the possibility that the mother is a lesser wife of Akhenaten called Kia. Um, again, that theory has its, has its supporters, and to be honest, I, it's the one that I tend to lean to, towards as well. Um, not a lot of inscriptional evidence really to, to uh, underpin it. Um, Akhenaten may have had otherwise. Uh, of course, Kia is the only other named wife that we know of, but that's that's the problem in dealing with any material like this. We, we always have to add that, that little um, addendum to the sentence that we know of, because, of course, uh, an excavation next month could find a wonderful stealer that, that lays out precisely who Tutankhamun's mother was. But, but again, based on our current knowledge, um, I think it's quite unlikely to be Nefertiti. It's possible that it's Kia. Um, another possibility is that it's a sister of, uh, of Akhenaten, so a daughter of Amenhotep III. Um, whether that is the same woman as Kia, again, that's a little bit tricky. The DNA evidence um, taken from a mummy called the Younger Lady um, certainly suggests that this woman was Tutankhamun's mother, but again, that doesn't necessarily help us um, ascertain precisely who she was. Um, but certainly he is the he is the heir apparent. He's the he's the well, uh, I suppose the, the, the son of, of Akhenaten, so someone we would expect to follow Akhenaten after his death. And as you know, uh, Nikki, Dr. Joyce Tildesley, who kindly uh, referred you as a as a guest for for the show. Um, so and this is for all the listeners. Um, Akhenaten and Nefertiti has been covered with. Uh, with a colleague of uh, Dr. Nielsen, Dr. Joyce Tildesley of the University of Manchester. So if anybody wants to uh, look up associated uh, episodes, so on July 10th, 2021, uh, we covered uh, uh, Akhenaten um, with, with Dr. Tildesley. And then on May 17th, uh, Nefertiti, uh, a, a queen of, of Egypt. And that was published on, as I said, May, May 17th, 2021 some uh, related episodes there. Um, what is the significance of Tutankhamun Carmen, to contemporaries these days? Uh, he was a pharaoh, so from a historical perspective, he's, he's important in that, that sense. But is it that his name has become more popular, do you think, because there's more um, writings and more... Uh, evidence about about him that survives than 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 most. You know what I'm getting at. What is it about Tutan? Ironically, it, it, sort of no, because there isn't actually more evidence about his reign. His reign is is a little bit enigmatic, and I hope we we will get back to that later on. Precisely what actually happens during his reign, but 
by comparison to a pharaoh like uh, Ramesses II, who reigned for over 60 years, or even Ramesses' father, Seti I, who only reigned for 11, but had a very active reign, Tutankhamun doesn't, his main mark on Egypt is really the end of the kind of Artemist experiment, the return to, to the sort of Amun-centered orthodoxy. Um, but really, in, in, in the grand scheme of things, he's a bit of a historical footnote. Um, and his kind of fame really is linked to the discovery of his tomb. Um, because the discovery of his tomb in the in the twenties, of course, I'm sure most of your readers, are uh, readers, or most of your listeners are familiar with, with uh, you know the story of of Howard Carter um, discovering the tomb of Tutankhamun. It has an an immense um, societal impact, um, both in 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 Europe and America, but but also within Egypt itself. Um, Tutankhamun becomes associated. He becomes a sort of banner around which. Um, a lot of political forces in Egypt that are advocating for more self-rule um, from from uh, from uh, Britain can can rally around. So he becomes important in that sense, um, and just internationally, his the discovery of his tomb causes a, a, a huge media stir, enormous media stir. Um, I, I would argue one of the first media storms um, ever ever recorded. There are just dozens and dozens of reporters who are basically camping out um, and booking up all the hotels, uh, hotel rooms in Luxor, um, trying to get interviews with the archaeologists working in the Valley of the Kings, trying to get photos, and, um, and, and failing, to be honest, because uh, the sponsor of the excavation, Lord Carnarvon, had at that point signed an exclusivity deal with the Times of London, so they're getting all the scoops, basically. Um, and because of that, a lot of frustrated journalists are sort of hanging around, hanging around looks. So there are even some slightly amusing um, anecdotes about fights, physical fights breaking out between journalists in, in, uh, in the lobbies of the hotels because they're so desperate for some sort of information to send back home because there's just this ravenous... Uh, hunger for more information about Tutankhamun and, and, and the discovery of his tomb. Now, precisely why that has such an impact, I think that that in itself requires almost a whole book to answer. Um, some of the reasons potentially, um, and I, I, I think really this is something that perhaps we can understand better now than we could understand, you know, two years ago. Um, if you think about the timing of the discovery, it's 1922, so it's after four years after the end of the First World War, and also um, at, towards the end of the um, uh, Spanish flu, this, this very, very, very horrific pandemic um, that had been ravaging around the world. And, and frankly, people needed a good story. People wanted to read something nice for once, and I think that's part of the reason why there was so much public interest in it, because it had literally just been misery and misery and misery. For, for years and years, and I think right now, uh, perhaps we can we can sort of recognize that as a, as a bit of a need in these sort of situations. Let's go to his reign soon then, um, and I and I want to put perspective on on this. How how old how old um, was he when it's believed that he died? Late teens, probably about eighteen. Okay. So, and I think that's important perspective when we're having this conversation because we're, we're really not talking about, um, even in, in these times, an average lifespan. No, no, absolutely. He, he dies young and also he, he, he has a rule which is about 10 years, which is, is not a short rule. Um, I mean, there are, there are definitely uh, kings that ruled for a lot shorter than that. But for most of it, he is a very, very young boy. 
do you believe then that he 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 was the son of Akhenaten? Akhenaten died, and then he, and then Tutankhamun became um, succeeded him, or or something else. No, there, there is a there is a period after Akhenaten vanishes, which in itself is a little bit um, mysterious and quite chaotic. He's succeeded by an individual called Smenkare, um, and then succeeded by another ruler, probably um, Neferu uh, uh, Nefer Neferaten. Um, some scholars have associated this latter ruler with Nefertiti. That's a possibility, but the evidence for this is is perhaps a little bit questionable. Um, there is. There is essentially a period of uncertain succession before uh, Tutankhamun is crowned. And Tutankhamun comes to the throne uh, with the help of a number of, of uh, powerful individuals. The two, I think, that are most known is I um, and Horemheb, who indeed later succeed him as, as rulers of Egypt themselves. How old is he believed that he when he began to reign? Well, probably about eight, something like that. So, you know, not an age where he would really have been in a position to fight, to, to put up much of a sort of uh, intricate power struggle by himself. He must have been helped. How old, um, yeah, not, not unheard of with these historical topics to hear of certain um, uh, children that, that are, uh, that, no, that gain, I mean, that, gain um, no. uh, that, that title. And it's not even unheard of in Egyptian history. I mean, there, there, there are some an old kingdom ruler, Peti II, who who is is pharaoh as a rules as a, as a young boy as well, or, or is 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 crowned as a young boy as well. So it's not unheard of. How old? And if you don't have the numbers immediately, but you might, if you don't have the numbers immediately in front of you, it's perfectly okay. Um, how old would uh, approximately um, Akhenaten been when he was? born when when uh Tutankhamun was born yes again that precise that that is a little bit difficult to estimate uh, probably a, a a young man i think that's let's leave it at that because even his age of death given that that his mummy is is not precisely identified there there is a lot of uncertainty there so we don't really know how old he was when he died either um and that makes it a bit difficult to be too specific on 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 this but he's not an old man and and to be honest Akhenaten's death also seems to come as a bit of a a bit of a shock it does seem to come a little bit out of nowhere so presumably he's not absolutely ancient where you might have expected that that it would have been come it's presumed that well, I guess if if it, if that if that's his, if that is if that is his father, then it's presumed that uh, Akhenaten is is either alive or would have just died around the time of his birth. Is that right? Uh, no, I, I I I think he would probably have been alive to see Tutankhamun at least grow up for a couple of years before he himself vanishes. Okay. All right. Well, that paints the that picture a little bit more. Um, okay. Yeah. So what's what's known then about and we're not talking about. Uh, a lot of years here, but what's 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 known about? So if he's around eight years old, what do I talk about his his reign? Well, I mean, <laughs> it's 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 a funny thing to talk about, isn't it? Because we can't really talk so much about his priorities as a ruler, because presumably at that age, you know, is is he really in a position to have many priorities? Presumably, what what we see happening, at least during the early part of his reign, is the priorities of his advisors um, rather than than himself. 
the main thing really that that occurs during his reign is the kind of end of the Amarna exper experiment and, and a return to both Thebes as as a kind of religious capital and also uh, a return to uh, to the worship of Amun. I mean, Tutankhamun's name originally is Tutankhaten, and it is then becomes Tutankhamun probably around the same time that the capital is moved um, from, from Tel Amarna to, to Thebes. The precise timing of this is a bit uncertain. It's, it's moved through the years, the kind of scholarly consensus of it. Um, it could have been at the beginning of his reign. It could have been around year four of his reign. Um, occupation at Akhenaten's capital certainly seems to continue, at least for, for a bit, even after Tutankhamun's death. But the court um, moves back, and that, in a sense, shows a... Um, well, it shows a change of priorities, though they chose a return to the way that things were, in a sense, that, that, you know, with the king kind of having their religious focus in Thebes. Um, the most significant document of his reign, at least uh, that we, we have so far, um, is the Restoration Stela. So the Restoration Stela is this very beautiful uh, quartzite Stela that was set up at... at, at um, Karnak fairly early into Khan's reign, and in it he, I mean, he get well, he gets as close to setting up policies as, as an Egyptian pharaoh ever will, in, in a sense. Um, it talks about how the country has been allowed to fall into rack and ruin, essentially, and how he, Tutankhamun, is, is uh, rebuilding it. So I, I've got a little bit of it here, actually. Um, uh, the temples and cities of the gods and goddesses, starting from Elephantini uh, as far as the Delta Marshes, uh, were fallen into decay, and their shrines were fallen into ruin, having become mere mounds overgrown with, with grass. Uh, the sanctuaries were like something that had not come into being, and the buildings were a footpath, for the land was in rack and ruin, ruin the gods were ignoring this land. Um, and Tutankhamun essentially lays out this very bleak picture of, of his father's reign and then addresses how his reign will improve the matter by going back to giving donations to the traditional temples and, and, and uh, restoring what had been neglected during, during Akhenaten's reign. Now, I, I highly doubt that these are the words of Tutankhamun. Of course, this is a, this is a formulaic thing. Um, and the policies are, you know, are probably the policies of his advisors rather than himself. He may, of course, have agreed with them, but again, at that age, I'm not entirely convinced by that. Um, but certainly, that was the direction of travel during his reign. That the kind of religious experiments of his father were were over, um, and there was a greater focus again on the cult of Amun, on the Karnak temple, the Amun priesthood as well uh, regains some of their power. Um, and there are some attempts to kind of bring the country back towards what it had been during the, the reign of Tutankhamun's grandfather, for instance, Amenhotep III. Um, so I think those were really the main priorities of, of Tutankhamun's, well, government, for lack of a, for lack of a better word. Um, we do know that there are a number of, of diplomatic missions that were also um, dispatched during his, his reign. So Horemheb, who would become his... Uh, his chief, uh, his, his uh, well, Generalissimo, the commander of his armies, um, had been sent to Nubia uh, to meet with his viceroy, Tutankhamun's viceroy in Nubia, uh, Hui, his chief representative, I suppose, in Nubia. Um, that resulted in a visit of several Nubian dignitaries 
to uh, to Thebes to the royal court. Um, there are uh, again some some uh, diplomatic uh, diplomatic correspondence as well with the Near East because the situation in the Near East is changing very rapidly, um, and Tutankhamun's ministers seem to be trying to sort of stay on top of things, um, especially with regards to the uh, Hittite kingdom and the newly emerging Hittites who at this point become a bit of a nuisance, to be honest, to the Egyptians and a bit of a threat. Um, I don't want to go into this in, in sort of enormous detail, but essentially what, what happens is that the Hittites under Sukhulumi Umas um, were trying to expand their, their borders. They did that by expanding into the territory of Mitanni um, in, in modern-day Iran and Iraq, um, or modern-day Iraq primarily, um, expanding into their territory. Um, and they also, um, there were some, some skirmishes and some, uh, some issues with the Egyptians as well. Probably towards the end of Akhenaten's, uh, Akhenaten's uh, reign, he may even have approved an actual Egyptian attack against the Hittites. Um, they failed to take the city of Kadesh, uh, and in exchange, the uh, the Hittites, uh, King Sugulumas of the Hittites, dispatched one of his uh, armies south, where they took uh, control of some Egyptian villages in the region called Amki. Um, they withdrew again, but there was some some saber rattling uh, across the border, and that that seems to have carried on into the reign of Tutankhamun and towards the in, end of Tutankhamun's reign. Um, there is then an actual Egyptian uh, attack again on the on the Hittites led probably by uh, by Horemheb. Um, they don't take the city of Kadesh, they fail to take the city of Kadesh, but they do defeat a Hittite, uh, a Hittite army. Um, shortly after uh, Tutankhamun's death, the Hittites then exploit the situation and uh, send their own troops back into Anki, back into Egyptian territory. Um, unfortunately for them, uh, some of their prisoners, some of the Egyptian prisoners they take, um, <laughs> unfortunately suffered from some sort of plague, which they then brought back uh, to, to Hattie, uh, and, and that gave them quite a lot of problems for several years, so that was uh, not necessarily a great move by the, by the Hittites. So there is a, a, a foreign policy during the reign of, of Tutankhamun, perhaps not quite as aggressive as during the reigns of some of his successors, like Thutmose III, but there is an attempt to try to re-establish Egypt's um, credentials as a, as a kind of major military power, military force in the ancient Near East. On the, on the Hittites uh, point, I, I want to mention another uh, episode if, um, if someone wants to learn more about the Hittites. So Mark, Dr. Mark Whedon of SOAS, University of London, has been on the show in the past. So we did cover uh, the Hittites um, civilization before, if anyone wants to understand those people uh, more. Um, Dr. Tildesley, in uh, both episodes that we did um, previously, Nikki, um, spoke about uh, obviously uh, Amarna and the um, sun deity Aten. Um, but if someone is new to the to this topic, um, because I think it is pertinent to, to this conversation in that yes. you mentioned there there was almost a uh, retroactive approach to some some of the policies that Akhenaten uh, put in place. Can you can you take a, maybe a, 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 a minute or two and just explain um, what the, the, the crux of it in Akhenaten's life around, why he's why he created that that city and and uh, his 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 belief system? Yeah, of course. I mean, the why is as usual a bit of a bit 
a bit of a question mark. Um, there are lots of different interpretations, but essentially from the from the kind of New Kingdom, uh, from the beginning of the New Kingdom onwards, um, Amun or Amun-Ra, uh, the god of Karnak, had become essentially a sort of de facto state god um, of Egypt, certainly the most preeminent god associated with kingship and victory. Um, so the Karnak temple just grows and grows. The Amun priesthood become richer and richer with, uh, with all these uh, lovely donations uh, from various kings, uh, mainly war booty, essentially. Um, and Akhenaten doesn't really, um, he doesn't really seem to like the Amun priesthood very much, or, or indeed Amun, um, and he focuses most of his religious attention on the god Aten, uh, the, the sun disk, um, at the expense of Egypt's other, other sort of traditional uh, deities. Now, Akhenaten didn't invent the Aten. It, 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 even his father uh, is depicted with the Aten on, on some occasions, but but it, he does ascribe it immense meaning, and it, meaning immense meaning, I should say, and it, it does become uh, the the actual state god of his uh, of his reign. And in order to worship it properly, he leaves Thebes and he moves the court to this newly constructed city um, of Akhetaten, Telalamana. Uh, today, where there is a great temple um, built and dedicated to the worship of the Aten. Um, the way that normal people, or ordinary people, went about worshipping the Aten was the, essentially worshipping the royal family. Um, everything is channeled through, uh, through Akhenaten. Now, why he did this, that's the big question, of course. You could, you could interpret it as, oh, he's just a, a sort of religious maniac who, who genuinely believes almost fanatically in, in, in the Aten. Um, he's been called the heretic king, for instance, which I, I don't really know whether heresy works in, 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 the kind of, in this context. Um, you could also look at it from a political angle. The Amun priesthood have become very, very wealthy in, in terms of land and, and resources. And in doing this, in, in essentially moving away from, from Amun and prioritizing the Aten, um, Akhenaten really hurt the Amun priesthood, uh, who could have become a, a, a political rival to him, a political, a, a sort of rival uh, power base. So it could also have been an entirely political move that he just didn't really like how powerful they were becoming, and this was his way at dealing with it. Um, that's a possibility too. Maybe it's a combination of both, um, or, or a completely different reason, but I think those are some of the the... I guess more accepted kind of explanations for why he did what he did, but you're right. Uh, Tutankhamun's reign really represents uh, a return to, for lack of a better word, normality. It had already begun even before uh, Tutankhamun, but but Tutankhamun's reign really speeds it up. And of course, if we read something like the Restoration Sila, I mean, he, he is, he's not putting his father's reign in a particularly good light. What do you think Tutankhamun's? religious orientation was? Well, it's, it's a good question, isn't it? Um, I don't think we can really say that, simply because he was so young. Even if he had been presumably brought up to worship the Aten, um, did he really believe in it? I, I don't know whether we, can really, uh, whether we can really say that. Certainly, officially, he returns to the worship of, of Amun. But again, there is this problem with what goes on behind the scenes, which we just can't evidence, and what do we see as the public face of things? That's really what we have when we study Egyptian royal families. We've got the, we've got what they want us to see, 
Um, and what they want us to see is things like statues of Tutankhamun depicted as, as the god Amun um, and restoring traditional Egyptian temples. That's what, that is the image that they wish to portray of the king. Is that what he really felt? There's simply no way to answer that. Did any contemporaries at that time uh, write about Tutankhamun in some, some way um, about his disposition that you feel as a scholar isn't simply there to glor glorify him? Not really. I mean, there are hints here and there. There's a, a reference in the tomb of Horemheb, um, his, his general, uh, where he, Horemheb claims that he's the only one who can essentially weather the king's temperament when, when Tutankhamun loses his temper, which from the kind of description seems to happen quite regularly. Now, that could be true. It could also just be Horemheb trying to show how important he is. Um, it's very difficult to really glean much from, from these sort of references. Um, personally, I, I simply don't know. Um, what we can say is that Tutankhamun was quite an ill um, child um, throughout his reign. Whether that means that he was necessarily a weaker ruler, I'm not sure that that's really a connection we can make, but it is possible that his advisors had perhaps a slightly easier time controlling him because he, he, was, he was quite ill. You talked about, um, we, we, we discussed his restoring of some of the traditional belief systems in Egypt from a state level. Um, yeah. you, t you mentioned some, some conflict that occurred in his reign, military conflict with the Hittites. Is there anything else before we work our way to the, what's known about um, his death? Is there anything else that you want to that, that cover? Well, I, I think the key to understanding Tutankhamun's reign is understanding the people around him. Um, so obviously we've got Iron Hornhead, um, major players at court. Um, we know that not only because they managed to seize power one after the other, after Tutankhamun died. Um, there are hints as well in the contemporary record. So there are some depictions in the tomb of, uh, um, of, of Hui, um, Tutankhamun's viceroy Nubia, uh, which show the king with all of these important officials standing behind his throne and standing closest to the king, um, even ahead of his viziers, his first ministers, is Iron Hornhead. Um, they're, they're the ones that are closest to the king and it's difficult not to view this as the artist essentially trying to demonstrate how the power relationship worked um, Horemheb was a, a well a commoner probably um, from, from the Fayum he, he didn't have any familial relationship to the, to the royal family but he certainly became very powerful very quickly um, I was probably quite a good soldier, I would imagine, um, as, a, as a result of that. I seems to be part of this <laughs> cabal of people associated with the city of Akmin um, that were sort of around the Theban royal family during the Amana period and during the reign of Tutankhamun. Uh, Tutankhamun's uh, tutor as well, one of his, his tutors when he grew up, was also a nobleman. Um, from uh, Akmim, although we don't know whether him and I were related. So he seems to be surrounded by these quite powerful individuals. Um, 
how precisely he exercised his power or whether they exercised power through him, I think that's much more difficult to say. Um, but I do think it's important to understand that he's not just someone who sits on a throne and just gives orders left, right and center. There are people standing right behind his throne who are very, very powerful individuals indeed. Akhenaten, it, it, it sounded like um, in, the, in the previous episode on, on Akhenaten, um, spent a lot of his time at Armana. Um, what's known about Tutankhamun in terms of traveling? Again, uh, he, um, most Egyptian kings were, were quite mobile. Um, they would have had royal palaces at several different locations. So you would have expected Tutankhamun both to be at Thebes and Memphis, for instance. Um, how much he could travel, I think, would really depend on how much a king could travel, would depend on their health as well um, and on their disposition. Uh, there are depictions of Tutankhamun leading his armies into battle. I think that's quite unlikely to be realistic. That's, uh, that's probably a, 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 a kind of fantastical representation, or rather a, a representation of the king as the king should sort of stereotypically act, you know, riding in a chariot and, and uh, driving, running over enemies basically with his chariot. Um, but we know from, from analysis of his mummy that um, he had a club foot, for instance, he most likely needed to walk with the king. Um, he had a cleft palate as well. Um, he had issues with his, his teeth and, as I said, with his foot as well. He may have had some other diseases as well, some chronic diseases. So whether he was in a position to travel very much, whether he was in a position to lead his armies into battle, I, I'm not sure of that. How do scholars believe he died? Well, that's, that's an interesting one because, of course, there is the, the ever-circulating story about how he was murdered. Um, now, I, I think this has been very definitively um, disproven as a theory. It was basically because of some x-rays in the 60s that showed some fragments of bone inside Tutankhamun's skull. Um, and one of the suggestions was that this was from, uh, basically, he'd been hit on the back of the head. Um, however, first of all, these may not be bone fragments. It, it could also be that the, 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 the head was damaged when the mummy was moved. We know that Howard Carter didn't treat the mummy particularly carefully. Um, so one would expect some injuries, um, to have, uh, to have, uh, happened essentially after the mummy was, uh, was, was discovered. Um, it's possible that he died from a combination of his uh, conditions mixed with malaria, um, mixed with possibly a kind of fracture to his leg, some sort of uh, leg fracture, broken leg, whether he fell off a chariot, uh, whether, whether he simply fell over and was hurt, we don't know. Um, but it seems to be a combination of factors rather than, than murder. I mean, the murder theory, I think, became so popular because it just, it, it's, it's like an Agatha Christie novel. It just writes itself. You have, I, this uh, old statesman, power-hungry statesman, Horam head, the general, standing right behind the king, and then the king just happens to die just at around an age where, where we would expect him to try to assert his own authority to a much greater extent. So the idea of his his closest advisors essentially getting rid of him um, because he was becoming an inconvenience, it just sort of, it really writes itself as a story, but I, I just don't think the evidence is really there, even though it is a, a very, I suppose, pleasing narrative. 
this show's covered Alexander the Third of Macedon, King Alexander uh, of yeah. Macedon in the past. And uh, in what you were sharing, somewhat reminded me of him because uh, apparently more ancient um, uh, writings of of Alexander, there was uh, theories about uh, about him being murdered. Um, yeah. But apparently, the more modern uh, consensus is is believing that he probably he probably drank drank a lot in his life and and he he was a warrior like he fought he fought a lot he had a rough he had a rough life and he, he had a hard life yeah he had a hard life and uh and and died died early something might have come on as a result of uh as a result of those two factors um okay so you did mention a, a bit of succession earlier um but it's probably uh makes sense chronologically to, to make sure we fully cover it um how was um Tutankhamen uh, succeeded. Well, this is the interesting bit because, of course, he, he dies without an heir. Um, he may have had two stillborn daughters. Um, that's one possibility, but he certainly didn't have a living blood heir. Um, he had designated Horemheb, his general, as his heir apparent if he died without issue, which indeed he did. However, it wasn't Horemheb that ascended the throne. Horemheb probably wasn't even in Egypt when Tutankhamun died. He was probably far off in, in Amki fighting the Hittites. So the person who ascends is I. Um, I is the person who inters Tutankhamun. Um, I is depicted in his tomb performing the opening of the mouth ritual. And in doing so, he transforms Tutankhamun into Osiris and he himself takes on the role of Horus. Um, and in doing so becomes the, the, the successor, the next king, basically. Um, it's possible uh, he also seems to have married Tutankhamun's widow uh, and, and sister-wife, basically, um, probably in order to bolster his, uh, his uh, regal credentials a bit further. I doesn't reign for very long because he was quite an old man, um, so probably only about four years. He does seem to spend some of his time or quite a bit of his time, uh, of his reign, trying to ensure his own succession. So he wants his son, called Nahmin, uh, to succeed him. That does not work. Um, when I dies, Nahmin basically vanishes from the historical record and Horemheb um, becomes the king in really what probably amounts to a military coup. It, we can essentially view this, you know, Horemheb was basically leapfrogged by, uh, by I and, and that was not going to happen again. Um, so when there isn't really an obvious heir, Horemheb just uh, rides into town and takes over. He also uh, damages and destroys most of Ai's mortuary uh, temple and his tomb for good measure. Um, and then he takes credit for a lot of the restoration, um, of, uh, including the work of, of, of Tutankhamun. Um, he's not particularly, in his official proclamations, his official uh, documents, he's, he's not particularly... Um, kind to to the sort of immediate uh, Amarna, Amarna successors. He much more identifies himself with Amenhotep III and just cuts out the entire Amarna period, including Tutankhamun. If you could be given the answer to one item about Tutankhamun that isn't known right now to scholars, what would be that one item that you'd want to know? <laughs> <laughs> ah, there are so many. I... I I think I would really have loved to see how he grew up. The first few years of his life, maybe until age six, I would have liked to see how he was treated and, and where he was during all the chaos immediately after his father's death. 
Um, who was who was supporting him? Who was protecting him? Um, where was he at that time? Was he in Akhenaten, in, in Akhenaten, sitting in a royal palace? What what was actually going on? Okay, it's been enjoyable enjoyable speaking with you, Nikki. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. So again, everybody, the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Nielsen wrote, he's author of Egyptomaniacs, How We Became Obsessed with Ancient Egypt. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Nikki and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.